Welcome to the IFE podcast series. Today's podcast is an IFE Grand Challenge lecture and features Ronnie Khan, CEO and founder of Oz Harvest. Ronnie Khan founded Oz Harvest in 2004, driven by a passion to make a difference and to stop good food going to waste. And the organisation has grown to be the biggest in Australia in terms of food rescue. Ronnie Khan demonstrates how effective collaboration and cooperation can successfully fight a global problem. Her lecture, recorded on Thursday the 1st of November, is entitled Harvesting Passion, From Identifying a Problem to Finding a Solution. We hope you enjoy this IFE Green Challenge lecture. Good afternoon, all of you. First of all, I too would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of this land and pay my deep respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. I've given lots of talks. It's quite daunting being in a theater in a university with a grand challenge series lectures. But um, I, I, love, I love the opportunity because Really, I think we're at a very, very interesting time in our history. And I think that what we have to acknowledge is that actually our food system is somewhat broken. And what's so fascinating for me now when I deal with the things and the challenges that I deal with is when I think back to why and how I started Oz Harvest, quite honestly, I did not even realize then that by rescuing food, which is why I started to feed hungry people, I did not even realize that there would be an environmental impact. It didn't take very long for that to happen. But perhaps I'll just share with you, because people do always ask me, and, and so I, I'll just go back a little so that I can get to where I am at today because it has been a fascinating 14-year journey. Well, 15, because it took a year for me to set up Oz Harvest. But I guess my background is the hospitality industry. So we've all been to parties, we've all been to events, we've all held parties and events. And food is sharing, food is caring, food is all of the things that we connect to people with. I think what's happened to us along the way is we've also lost the value of food. And, and I need you to please excuse me because I do know that if you are here, you probably are somewhat converted. But, and often the people who come to listen to me talk are people who either are interested in the subject, who care about it enough, and that is why you're here. And I guess our challenge is it's the empty seats, it's the people who aren't here who actually really need to listen. But, however, I, just going back to the fact that at all of my events, one of the things, I was an event producer and putting on these beautiful events, and food was a beautiful way of showing abundance, showing generosity, and actually showing success. It possibly still is in many ways, you know? We're, we're abundantly generous when we, when we have people over. Anyway, at my events, there was, I, I, I didn't want anyone to leave my events and have to go to Macca's on the way home. <laughs> so my tables groaned and people would leave the events. I always used unique spaces. I didn't 
much like using hotels. I would be in interesting spaces, and by the time the end of the event came, people would just want to take that food, get the hell out of there, and throw it away. And so that was really the beginning for me that triggered that this was actually not so okay. Now, it's really important that you also know that I was born in South Africa. You could probably hear that from my speech impediment. Apologies to any South Africans in the room. But during that time, I was, I certainly, certainly never ever grew up saying one day I'm going to run a charity and one day I'm going to be a change maker or an activist or a social entrepreneur. These are all words that I'd never even heard, nor did I aspire to be. Um, in fact, I was incredibly spoiled. I was white growing up in apartheid South Africa and never thought twice about where my food came from and where it was going and the fact that other people didn't have as much as I did. However, I was fortunate in that my parents had values that told us, despite the fact of what the legislation was, that it was not okay to discriminate against other people. So I think that sense of values certainly has stayed with me, and I'm always so mindful now how values are subliminally um, absorbed. And I hope as parents we all realize how important it is to actually be what we want to be and behave in the way that we want to be. But those values I got told me that it wasn't okay. The point is that growing up in South Africa, leaving South Africa, I lived for 10 years on a kibbutz. And a kibbutz, for anyone who knows what that is or doesn't, it is a community. It's community living, and it's generally agricultural-based. So we'd go out into the fields, we'd break a watermelon if we wanted one from the field and eat it in the field. So there was a huge appreciation of food from that point of view. But again, there was abundance of food and, and nobody thought about consuming less. You'd leave half a watermelon in the field if you didn't finish it. Fast forward back to my event life, and I reached a point in my life that what I wanted to know was my purpose, what I had been put on this earth for, and it felt to me that if I had a daily problem, which I did in my event business, and that problem was what to do with food, that was my big challenge. The food was left over, and I was watching this wonderful food being turfed, and so I started putting it into my car and taking it to the one charitable organization that I knew that was on my way home. And it was quite confronting to do that. I'd arrive at a place right behind the Porsche and the Ferrari dealers in William Street in Sydney, for any of you who know Sydney. And there'd be hundreds of men of all shapes, sizes, and ages, and this was generally late at night. And I'd step out of my red sports Audi because that at that time for me was a symbol of my success and 
were the values that when I'd come to live in Australia, all I really wanted to do was just find security, make money, get a roof over my head. And once my business had started going okay, I'd started reaching that point that, wow, how many houses can I live in? How many rooms do I actually need? How many cars do I need? And started questioning all of that. Clearly it's not, what hasn't worn off is how much jewelry I can wear. <laughs> but, you know, that doesn't cause much harm to anybody. But the point is that all of those things were the things that I started questioning. And so I take this food and, and one day I thought, wow, if I've got this problem, maybe somebody else has. But I still hadn't realized the scale or the scope of, of what I was either getting myself into or what was in store for me. And as I realized by taking this food, the value that this food had when I was bringing it to an organization, that was eating white bread and jam, and I was bringing exquisite wheels of parmesan and exquisite whole salmon that were left over. A couple of things started happening, and, and I realized that, first of all, there was this food. And so I decided, without much thought about what it takes to start a charity, that and, and so I'm not a very good example when people say to me, you know, did you have a business plan and let's talk about how you grew and how you started. I decided to start a charity because I knew there was food and I knew there were people in need and thought, wow, that would be awesome to connect them. I guess 100 million meals later, it hasn't been such a bad idea. However, it's what it took along the way and what I've learned along the way, and what kind of a world we live in today, and how today there is, you know, I always laugh that it's taken 14 years to get the kind of awareness that's happening today, this overnight success. But 14 years ago, I was a bit of a lone voice saying, there is beautiful food and we could repurpose it. Nobody was touching fresh food, nobody was touching ready cooked food and that I think I think there's absolutely no doubt that the reason that Oz Harvest was so successful was because I didn't actually have to teach anybody that wasting good food is not a good thing because if I ask each and every one of you how many of you at some point in your life have heard Eat your food, because there's someone starving somewhere. So I, I will just share with you, because it's quite funny, that in growing up in South Africa, and if there are any other South Africans, they might be able to corroborate that or not. But growing up in South Africa, my parents told me we should eat our food because there were people starving in China. <laughs> no, seriously, that's what they told us. I mean, why I couldn't give my peas to the millions of people who are around my corner? Nobody ever said they were starving in Africa. And here now, it's, it's always funny because we say that's not funny. It's just ironic. But um, so it's ignited something in the public 
this notion of making sure that good food would not go to waste. But, but, it hasn't translated to all of our behavior because as you heard, said that $20 billion, today $20 billion worth of food goes to waste in Australia every year. And 10 billion of those dollars are actually caused by us. Maybe none of you in this room, but consumers, all of us. So as I started Oz Harvest, first of all, I was rescuing food. And then I realized, okay, it wasn't going to be just such a little thing just from the caterers that I was dealing with. The stores that I started going to all said, how can we get involved? And it was only after about a year when a supermarket called me and said, you know, we'll never give you food, of course, because, of, because we'd be worried about our liability. I, I, I think I'm not so good at being told never. I'm also not so good, good at being told no. And so I thought, wow, okay, so what is it going to take to make it possible for food to be rescued without liability to the food donor? And so it took a year. Um, I got pro bono lawyers on board, and it took a year, and we had the Civil Liabilities Amendment Act passed in New South Wales in 2005. In 2008, that was changed in... Um, the ACT in 2009 in Queensland and South Australia. And that shifted the whole, the whole platform because by reducing the liability of a food donor to be able to give their food. So that was a challenge that for some reason nobody else chose to deal with. I say I, I, I've been gifted the possibility of doing that. But that shifted the plan, shifted the quantities, shifted everything about starting to raise awareness about food waste. So our challenges are huge because today we all understand, well, we don't all understand, but we all in this room, we all understand. We all realize that we produce enough food for the nine billion people that, live, that will live on this planet. Seven billion live on the planet currently. And yet, just in Australia, I, I hate to say that the new stats that have come out are that four million Australians suffer from food security or f need food relief in this abundant country. So how does it work that we waste $20 billion worth of food and 4 million people need food relief? It, it kind of doesn't compute, but that is the reality. And one of the ways that will change that is education. So as Harvest, from the day that I started it, our first premise was food rescue. Let's make sure that good food that is visible, that is logistically possible to move, can get from one place to the other. 
We knew that we'd make it safe. We knew that it would all be about efficiency, logistics. That is the nature of what we do. The question then became, for me, I didn't start Oz Harvest to be the biggest food rescue organization in the world. I actually started because I thought I'd solve a problem. So for me, it's all about how do we solve the problem and not just perpetuate it. And so very quickly, from our purpose, which was to rescue food, we grew our purpose to nourish our country. And we do that now in four ways. We rescue, we educate, we engage, and we innovate. Because education is actually what's going to shift and change the nature of our challenge today, and that is food waste. You touched on the fact that every single time we throw away an apple or a banana, we're not just throwing away the 60 cents or the dollar that that apple cost. It's the water, the fuel, the labor, the energy that it costs to produce that apple. And so a big challenge is how do we start valuing food? How do we put the value back into food when actually food is very cheap? Now we will all complain when there might be rain and then bananas become more expensive or they're not around for a while or there's a drought and then produce isn't around. But in fact, if we thought about the pure costs of what it costs to produce our food, it's actually too cheap. None of us want to pay more, but it is too cheap and so we've lost the value of the worth of what that costs. So that's one of the challenges we all face. The other is that we have become a little complacent and a little um, consumer-driven in that we walk into a supermarket at 8 in the morning and there's a whole array of products. And now we can walk into a supermarket at 10 o'clock at night and we want the exact same array of products that they were at 8 in the morning. And so our demand has driven the fact that we can get food at all hours of the day, and yet we're very quick to say, those supermarkets, now you need to know, I am not a protector of supermarkets. I have no vested interest in supermarkets. But every time people say to me, but it's the supermarkets, I don't want to, I want to walk into the supermarket and not have plastic bags. And I want to walk into the supermarket and not buy my fruit in nets. Well, you know what's going to stop a supermarket putting fruit in nets? If we don't buy it in nets. If we write letters to the supermarket and say we don't want our fruit to come in nets. We don't want to eat cherries when they're not in season. So it's such a vicious cycle and circle and it is at some point how we will have to take responsibility for the fact that our food system is somewhat broken. And the beautiful part is that we actually are the solution. So this isn't a problem that is insoluble. It is a problem that is in each and every one of our hands.
because we actually do have the capacity to make change. It was alluded that I have had run-ins with the government. So I'd love to share with you, because it's actually, are there, are there any government people? <laughs> oh good, nobody's admitting, so that's okay. So, um, we, an independent film company decided to do a documentary and follow me for a couple of years, which was, I, I just pretended they weren't there and went around doing exactly what I did. But in 2015, on understanding and knowing that the UN had declared UN SDG goal 12.3, that they were calling on countries to halve food waste by 2030, I decided, wouldn't it be an extraordinary thing if Australia achieved that goal and committed to achieving that goal? And so, together with a bunch of my team, we prepared beautiful food, we arranged to go to Canberra, and we took a whole meal of rescued food. We invited the Minister for the Environment, who was then Greg Hunt. We invited the Shadow Minister, we invited the Greens, and about 70 MPs, and we served them this beautiful meal from rescued food. And we asked our government to commit to halving food waste by 50%, I was very ambitious then, this was 2015, and said by 2025. And Greg Hunt stood up, Tanya Plibersek, Labour, Mark Baker, the Greens, and they committed, and we had a commitment from government to halve food waste by 2015, by 2025, which was just magnificent. I left thinking, wow, now something will happen. Anyway, a year went by and nothing happened. So I decided, okay, well, we will create a zero food waste forum and we'll invite everyone in the food supply chain. That meant supermarkets, government, producers, growers, hospitality, and we will start a dialogue on what it's going to take to minimize food waste by 50%. And we invited government to. And we had a couple of these, a couple of forums, and they were very powerful, and government got a little antsy because we were actually making some progress, which was wonderful. And in 2017, our new Minister for the Environment, uh, then, um, was <laughs> Mr. Frydenberg who stood up in May 2017 and committed to the UN SDG goal 12.3 to half food waste by 2030, which by now that was the date that was set in, as if it hadn't been committed before. It's only one little challenge. It was all documented for the documentary, but that's besides the point. The point is that was wonderful. And then he declared in May that in November 2017, there would be a national food waste strategy. In the meantime, we'd been doing a lot of work with a UK-based organization called RAP, who have been at the forefront of getting the UK working on minimizing food waste by 2030. They had started 10 years before us, so they had a 10-year lead and a wonderful track record. 
and we'd been working very closely with them. We brought one of their people over, and in about June, I went to visit Mr. Frydenberg to say, do you need some help with getting this national food waste strategy happening? And we'd been working with the department, and they probably, every time we'd just made some progress with someone in the department, they were moved to another department. Seriously, it was, it, I, we laugh, but it wasn't, it, it's quite tragic, actually. Anyway, when, so when I went to visit Frydenberg again, we had the cameras, and it's all documented, beautiful. And three, about two months before the national strategy was about to be delivered, um, we were asked if we could, because we had presented the line-by-line -line document of what it would take to achieve halving food waste by 2030. Two months before, they said, well, could we also do the budget for the line-by-line -line document? which we did, we, and they needed it urgently. We pulled, I pulled everyone out of every department of mine, and we just spent 48 hours documenting exactly what it would take for the first four years of the fight food waste to halve food waste by 2030. We worked out that we would need 30, this country would need to invest $30 million over four years, by which point we wanted to get a voluntary business agreement, which we had seen working very well in Europe and in the UK. And we sent off the document and never heard back. And then we chased and said, do you need any help with understanding the document? And, and nothing. And the week before the strategy was due to be announced, we called and said, how's everything going? You haven't called us? No, it's all good. Anyway, arrive in Melbourne on the, on the day of the announcement. Were you, were any of, nobody here was there. And Mr. Frydenberg comes in and he comes straight to me. There's 300 people in the room, straight to me for a quick picture opportunity. And then he stands up and announces that our government has committed $1.2 million to fight food waste. It was like, what you're hearing now is what there was. It was like, no, no. And as we'd walked in, he had said to me, I want you to come with me to the press conference after the, my announcement. <laughs> anyway, he says this. I look at him and I say, before we walked in, I said, he came to me and I said, am I going to be happy with what you announce? He said, I think so. You must understand it's the very beginning. I said, yeah, but a very beginning needs something to start with. Anyway, at the end, he comes to me and I'm like, as you can imagine, shell-shocked. And he says, so come with me to the press conference. And this is all documented. If you see our food fighter film, I, I'm kind of 
looking like I'm somewhat stunned and I have to go and stand in front of the press and say something, doesn't matter, I won't. Anyway, the film crew then asked me what I thought. And the truth is this, the film had not been made yet. They were just filming me and who thinks about a film that's gonna come out? that you might say something that's going to appear on film. I might be naive. I might, I'm clearly very naive, but had no... Seriously, for two years they'd followed me. I never thought about what I was saying. Anyway, they said, what, what do you think? And I said what I thought, and they put it in the film. <laughs> and I begged them to pull it out, because I said, one day he might be the Prime Minister. <laughs> I didn't know that six months later he'd be our deputy or whatever he is now. Anyway, so the point is, the good part is, there isn't really such a good part, but there is, there is. They put me on the National Steering Committee of the Food Waste Committee, because I think they didn't know what to do with me, and they thought if they don't, they're stuffed, and if they do, they're stuffed. <laughs> but anyway, I am there, and we are making progress. It's very slow, very slow. But um, the point is that when the film did come out, I figured we wanted to show the film in Parliament House. So I had to call Josh, and say, would you like to host the film? <laughs> Seriously? He said, am I going to like it? <laughs> I said, that's an interesting perspective. I think you might not like it so much, but if you don't, somebody else will host it. So you can choose. Anyway, they did host it, to his credit. And when a photographer came and said, can I have a photo, or would you like to say something? He said, no, I don't trust this woman. <laughs> but luckily, he's a politician. <laughs> the point is, there is a National Food Waste Committee. There is a steering committee. There is a CRC that is working um, side by side. And QUT, as you know, is part of that CRC. And I think, look, I don't know what we'll achieve. I don't know that we'll achieve. I, I wish I could wholeheartedly say to you that we will have food waste by 50%. Our challenge for all of us is we've got to lobby our politicians. Climate change and food waste have got to be issues that are not political. It's got to be an issue that it doesn't matter what party you're from. Those are non-negotiable. And you can fight about other things. But these, both of those things are so intrinsically connected, and both of those things need all of us to, to put our stamp and say not during our lives. Otherwise, we are colluding. We are colluding every time we let these things pass. And the only way 
that things are going to change is if we all take action. Because seriously, I am... I, I, I honestly don't really know why I was given this task to do what I do. But I am no different from any single one of you. And every single one of us has a voice. And every single one of us has the power to add their voice to a collective voice. If you think, I'm not sure politically if, if what happens in New South Wales you are aware of, and I'm not saying that because I think you're not aware. I just don't know if it was of interest, the fact that in the Wentworth seat, very three weeks ago, the Liberals lost their seat in the most powerful seat that they'd never had before. And that was because of people power. So the economy has got to change. If you look at this world, if you look at our leaders, if you look at the, the way that countries, politics, I, I, I don't normally like to go into politics. However, I think we have a big challenge and I think we have leaders that have lost their compassion, lost their care, lost their capacity to fundamentally deal with the issues that each and every one of us need dealing with. And to deal with people as people. They are in power to entrench themselves in power. And that is not the reason they got there. And we need to make our voices heard. Because whether it's bringing kids off Nauru, whether it's helping us to have a better society, to have, a, to have our farmers looked after, to have our climate looked after. We have to do something. And so I know that you are the converted, but the converted are the ones that actually have to take action. And I'm reading a very powerful book, and it's called New Power. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. Um, the guys that started Get Up, are you all familiar with GetUp? And it talks about the whole new economy of people power, of how businesses, corporates, have got to shift and change. And they, they, they shift and change because we want to have a voice. We must have a voice. The reason Karen Phelps got in is because people power took over. Nobody sat apathetic. Now, we could look at what's happened in the States and... You know, will Mr. Trump get in again? Hard to know. Hard to know that he won't. I mean, it's horrifying to think that he will, to me, sorry, but it's hard to know that he won't unless people power takes over. So if I look at my world, the challenges that I deal with, we have to stand up every single day. We have to be mindful. For the first time ever, Oz Harvest has just launched a consumer movement. So for the last 14 years, we've dealt with business. We are B2B. We've taught thousands of businesses not to waste food. We make it easy for them. We arrive at their doorstep. It is free service. You know, what was I thinking when I started it as a free service? That was dumb. But the point is, it's a free service and so what is in it for them to lose?
So we've, we've shifted and changed business. There's still many more businesses that need to come on board. But for the first time now, we have just launched a movement, a campaign that is always on from now on, certainly until 2030, until we've halved food waste. And then we're going to go further. And it's called Fight Food Waste. And what we are going to be looking for are food fighters, a super food fighter force, because it's going to be a cascade model. It's going to, what we're going to need, and this is a university, and you have the power for change at a university. We are looking for people that we can train, who will go out and train people, who will go out and train people. Our predictive model is if we find a thousand people who go out and train ten people, who then go out and train ten people on how not to waste food. And so we have a new mantra. You all learned slip, slop, slap, and we made a big dent in melanomas from the sun. So your new mantra is look, buy, store, cook. Look what's in your fridge before you go shopping. Look what's in your pantry. Make a list. Buy what you need. So that is no impulse buying. Buy what you need. Occasionally you can have some impulse buying. Store that food properly. Store it. Use the fridge as a pause button. Store it. These are things that our grandparents knew. We didn't need to learn them, but we clearly need to be reminded of them. And we need to cook what we've bought, and if we don't cook it, freeze it, and if we do cook it and don't turn it into leftovers, freeze it, but, or divert. We, we've thought of adding a fifth one, which is divert, put it into compost. But the point is that the research tells us that will save us most, uh, on an average household, will save us $3,800 a year. That's how much food we waste on an average. So I think that's a huge incentive for us to think twice, not to mention, of course, the farmers and our, all the amplifying effects of not wasting food. But I don't know how long I've spoken for. It's about right? Oh, okay, it's about right. <laughs> so I'm, of course, I'm, I'm open to answering questions. Um, I, I want to thank you for the privilege and honor of giving me this opportunity to come and share just a little bit um, of what's happening in the world of food waste. Um, but I urge you, I urge you to take action. I urge you every time you think, why doesn't somebody, three fingers are pointing back at you. Why don't you do? But we do need you to lobby, to make a noise, tell your supermarkets if there's something you don't like, tell your markets, buy fresh, buy, buy local. When we watch our TV programs on cooking shows that tell you to make this beautiful thing and you need 25 ingredients, check what's in your cupboard first. Maybe think if you're really going to use them all. Be creative, be inventive. You've been listening to a podcast from the IFE. To stay up to date with our podcasts, please subscribe to our channel. You can also visit us on the web at qut.org.
www.edu.au forward slash IFE. And we're also on Twitter at IFE underscore QUT and also on Instagram at IFE.QUT. We really hope you enjoyed this IFE podcast.